I love the uh, reference that uh, Michael made this morning of Matthew 4.4, which is not where I'm going to be teaching, but I love it anyway. It says, I am the bread of life, about the bread, and how the word of God is the bread of life. But it relates to what I'm going to be teaching this morning. So thank you for doing that. As I was preparing for this message about a month ago that Steve told me he was going to be gone, I started to think about what would I teach on, what could I teach on, what should I teach on. And it came to my mind that I need to teach on something that I have been dealing with, something that is personal to me, and something that as I look forward to this coming year, hopefully would be personal to you as well. And this verse popped into my mind. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The beginning of each year presents its challenges. We look back to look forward, and we try to plan for what comes next. We make a list of goals that are some attainable and some unrealistic. We are determined that this new year will bring new opportunities to reach those goals, although most of us, understanding by past experiences, most of those goals are never reached. We begin with good intentions, but by the second or third month, life has a way of redirecting those goals that we so desperately wanted to fulfill in many different directions. We are inundated with multiple advertisements that entice us to make the changes we want to make. However, there is a cost, whether seen or unseen, that we must endure. Whether it's exercising, dietary changes, whether we should remodel our house, buy new clothing, start going to bed earlier, will we be able to go anywhere without wearing a mask, and so on. Changes that we believe will benefit our daily living. Well, let's look back to the beginning of 2020. I think anyone, no one could have predicted what the year would have looked like in comparison and what it is. A year unlike any other. It started out as a year of hope and change, a year that would be prosperous, a year that would unveil new technologies, new breakthroughs, new possibilities. So we might have thought, well, it has been a year unlike any other. I want to share a little bit of my year with you this morning, a year that was not planned, not anticipated, and certainly not even thought of. And see, if you can identify and relate with me the many unexpected trials that you have gone through this past year. In January of 2020, we were contacted by our landlords of 25 years and asked if they could come over and meet us. Looking forward and expecting them to tell us that we could stay another 25 years, we awaited their visit with anticipation. They have been so gracious to us over the years that we became friends and went out to dinner with them several times, sharing our faith and our love for God and church. As they walked through the front door, the look on their faces was not one of excitement. It was quiet and somber and sad. They informed us that some small, after some small talk that they were heartbroken to tell us that we needed to move by the end of March. Through a veil of tears, they explained that the school district, their grandson who has a rare disability, needed to be in our address. With tears in our eyes, Shelley and I completely understood the need for the move as hard as it was going to be. 
Starting that year, that next week, we began to pack. I began to look for our next house, and we began the journey of moving. And as many of you may know, the stress of moving rates right up there along with terminal sickness and death. Things were moving along pretty well, and Shelley and Steph were working their hearts out, <laughs> packing, labeling, organizing, and stacking as best they could. Looking for a place to leave presented me with a sticker shock. It had been so long uh, that our landlords had been so gracious to us with our rent that we had forgotten just how much it cost to live in this area. Well, to make a long story short, as they say, we found the house that we currently are living in and are thankful for God's provision. Although, to be honest, it's taken me some time to see this is exactly what we needed and not exactly what I wanted. Then, as all of us know, we were affected by the outbreak of a virus that no one could have imagined or even understood. And it affected us both personally, corporately, and globally. The shutdown and shelter in place was ordered one week after we moved. Praise God for that. Business shut down, schools closed, job sites halted all work. The world as we knew it would never be the same. Our old way of life has been and will be forever changed. There was a blessing, though. It gave us time to unpack, organize, build things, garden, plant, and for a time, just relax. In June, we started back to work. It was a welcome relief for the ones who had to go on unemployment. We were back cleaning again with multiple protocols that had to be followed. The end of June took a bittersweet turn. The Lord took my 99 and a half year old father home. And as he started to decline in April, it was hard not to see him, but needing to prepare for the reality that was to happen in June, we pressed on. My brother Jeff and I did go and see him right before the Lord took him home. And we were thankful for that provision. From that point on, there was there has been consistent awareness of uncertainty. The results of the virus raising its ugly head. A very contested election year. Protests, violence, a purpose disregard for life, property, and authority. The tearing down of our history one statue at a time. The exploitation of division that didn't exist. The multitude of fires in our state that darkened our skies for weeks and made our air unbearable to breathe. We were unable to celebrate Thanksgiving this year as we have before. Christmas was put on hold for the first time in recent history. The church is under attack. Our system is being reconstructed. Our constitution is being rewritten. And our rights are in jeopardy. This is the world in which we live and find ourselves somewhat overwhelmed by the circumstances that surround us. What do we have to look forward this new year? you may ask. Well, there's hope. The same God that throughout history is still on the throne, he is still Lord over all the earth, and he is executing his plan according to his will. That gives us hope, not because of the circumstances, but because he is the God over all things. We're reminded of this verse in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And later on it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble 
hardship, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or the danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This morning we are hopefully going to reset our minds, reposition our hearts, rejuvenate our souls, readjust our focus, and revitalize our spirit. We will be looking at one verse to set our eyes on and plant our feet securely on its foundation. This is the foundation, no matter what we face, that we need to build on that will carry us through any circumstance. Not only this coming year, but day after week after month after year. This is God's priority with purpose. As is customary, we always like to stand as we read, read God's word. So let us stand open to the book of Matthew chapter 6. And we'll be starting in verse 19. Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The lamp is a lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Or will you, it is, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying could add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would bless it to our minds, to our hearts, to our souls. And that, Father, that as we go through and we unpack this, that, Lord, you would give us the hope that as we look to this coming year, Lord, there's nothing that can stop your purpose and your will except ourselves. And so I pray, Father, that we would submit to you this morning as we go forward, in Jesus' name, amen.
and be seated. These verses are recorded in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of an epic, groundbreaking sermon from Jesus himself to a multitude of people from different backgrounds, different social standings, religious as well as non-religious, believers and non-believers. Chapter 5 through 7 contain the exposition, the exhortation, and the application of Christian ethics as found for Christian living. In chapter 5, we have the Beatitudes. Chapter 6, we have what is referred to as the Lord's Prayer, a model, as well as we will be looking this morning at the section that's called the Worry Section. Then in chapter 7, we have the verse, Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Jesus covers a collection of practical issues as well in these three chapters as anger, adultery, divorce, loving your enemies, fasting, and so on. This was a sermon unlike any other words heard for the first time, and they were foreign to the listeners. A sermon never preached before and would be later recognized that this rabbi spoke with authority verse 29 in chapter 7. For 110 verses, Jesus speaks to the crowd, and this section of Matthew's gospel is rich with insight and revelation spoken by God himself. All four gospels have a uniqueness of their own. Matthew's gospel reveals the servanthood of Christ. Luke reveals the humanity of Christ, and John reveals the divinity of Christ. Each gospel has unending significance, and here in Matthew's, we are seeing the kingship of Christ. Our verse for this morning puts all the issues that Jesus explained into a direct, simplified, and clear command. Verse 33, a challenge for every believer every moment of each day. As we read through this passage, we might notice that Jesus puts our physical needs ahead of his command. Verses 25 through 32, he knows what we as humans focus in on and our needs and wants before our dependency usually on his provision. Our food, our drink, our clothing may not seem that important to us, but most of us have an abundance of those things and don't understand needing those things. These are all practical necessities. However, if we lived in the time that Jesus was speaking these words, we would realize that these necessities were very real. They were of great concern to the people of that time in that area, the Middle East, where drought and food shortages were common, which affected the crops, and most of the living was done outdoors, taking care of their gardens and other livestock. Their clothing was limited. Their attire was practical. And I don't think they had designer sandals or Gucci bags or even Tommy Bahama robes. Their life was one of survival and need. They had to be concerned with what comes next. That concern would change to worry and then it could consume them, sending them into a place of desperation and atrophy. Jesus wanted to let them know that he identified with their concerns by starting with a sympathetic heart acknowledging their worry about the necessities of life. He makes a comparison in such a clear way that his listeners could not misunderstand what he was saying. 
But to get the understanding, we'll need to back up. We'll need to look back starting in verse 19 through 24. The first thing Jesus tells us in these verses is that worry reveals a flawed value system. This section indicates that we may be suffering from a false set of values, that we are more preoccupied with our temporary problems than we are with God's eternal promises. Or even more serious, that we are more concerned about our money than we are about our master. In other words, physical needs are more important than godly desires. We obviously need food and clothing and shelter. God knows that. But life is much more than those things. And as Jesus said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. They are more important issues than the food we eat, the beverages we drink, and the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the sports we play, and the entertainment we enjoy. Our walk, our relationship with the Almighty, this is what we need to think about. There's the redeeming work of Christ in our lives. There are the purposes for which he made us and the eternal home he is preparing for us. This type of worry indicates that we are letting our temporary problems become more real to us than our eternal destination and future inheritance. We are storing up treasures here that will eventually fade away and rust and neglecting our heavenly treasure. We are faced with choosing to serve our needs or submit to God. Secondly, worry reveals that we have a flawed self-image. Verse 26 says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? This should be an indication to us that we are underestimating how valuable we are to God. Experts estimate that there are somewhere between 200 and 400 billion birds that are flying around our planet at any given one time. And each one of them is ordained. And they're a minister of God's creation. God cares for his creation. On several occasions, Jesus told us not to notice how God provides food for the birds of the air and to remember that we are much more valuable than they. Notice the words in Matthew 6, 26, are you not much more valuable? Here he is telling us that you are valuable. No, 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 he's saying you are very valuable. No, no, wait, you are much more valuable. We are valuable to God, more valuable than anything else he has made for we were created in his image. We were valuable enough that he gave his life on our behalf for the penalty of our sin. And when we realize that we have a God who loves us and values us, that we are worth something to him, in fact, that we're everything to him, then that should help reduce our worry. If we are that valuable to him, we can rest assured how much more he cares for us than we can even imagine. Thirdly, worry reveals a flawed way of thinking. Verse 27 says, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? As we look at this, some of you may have the translation says, Which of you by worrying can add a single inch to his height? Or, Which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? 
In the New Testament Greek, the original says, which of you can add any length to your life? Could be also translated cubit. Both are acceptable. What Jesus was saying was, which one of you by worrying could add any length to your life? Or any height? In other words, we can worry all we want, but anxiety doesn't do us any good. It's a waste of mental and emotional energy. It doesn't add one hour to our life, one cubit to our height. In fact, stress may actually take it away. Fourthly, God's worry reveals a flawed trust in God. Verses 28 to 30 says, And why do we worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass in the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If you remember the time when the disciples were in the boat going across the sea and a great storm came and they were, they were panic-stricken. Jesus is sleeping. How can this be? We are going to drown. And yet Jesus rises up and says, Calm, by his word. That is the trust we need to put in our God. He has the power by his word to stop things, change things, permit things, initialize things. Faith is the ability to maintain an inner calmness and strength by trusting in the promises of God even while going through the problems of life. Jesus talks about the flowers. Earlier he talked about the birds. If he cares about the millions of birds and the billions of flowers, again, how much more does he care for you and I? Fifthly, worry reveals a flawed purpose in life. In verses 31 to 33, it says, Do not worry, saying, What shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. In other words, if we take care of the things that are important to God, he will take care of the things that are important to you. I think a lot of people read this verse in, in reverse and they say, I'm going to try to add all these other things to my life and then with my leftover time and energy, I'll seek the Lord. But it never works that way. If you're a follower of Christ, you must put him first. If you put Christ first, he'll worry about all the rest of it. If you don't put Christ first, you'll have to worry about the rest of it. And finally, in verse 34, worry reveals a flawed view of the future. It says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In other words, Jesus specifically tells us here to deal with today's issues, and don't worry about tomorrow's possibles. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare for tomorrow, but it does mean that the best way of preparing for tomorrow is by handling today's work with enthusiasm, wisdom, faith, 
trust and obedience to him. The psalmist wrote this, a very familiar, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Notice that he did not say this is the year, the week, or the month, but this is the day. Jesus said in his teaching to the disciples in the Matthew chapter 6, or before, says, give us this day our daily bread. We can't change the past. It's under God's precious blood in Christ. We don't know the future. It's in the sovereign hands of God. But we live moment by moment, step by step, and day by day, continually trusting in God's promises. And that leads us to our verse for this morning. The famous Christian George Mueller once said, Many times when I could have gone insane from worry, I was at peace because my soul believed the truth of God's promises. The promises of God are the biblical antidote to anxiety and worry. And we need them now more than ever because we're living in very anxious times, are we not? Here's a collection of some various comments and quips. One quote says, Worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. A creative church sign read, Worry is a dark room where negatives are developed. I like that one. George Washington reportedly once said, Worry is the interest paid by those who borrow trouble. Another one said, Worry is today's mice nibbling at tomorrow's cheese. And one, one more said, Worry is the complete cycle of inefficient thought revolving around a pivot of fear. And the great American doctor Charles Mayhew said, Worry is the disease of doubt. He said it affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never known a man who died from overwork, but many who have died from doubt and worry. But please hear me. I am in no way discounting the emotional and crippling aspects of anxiety that so many people suffer with. It is a very real, and in some cases, a very dominant life-altering struggle. The great Charles Spurgeon was said to have suffered from anxiety and depression most of his life. Well, let's look back at the verses. Jesus mentions, don't worry, three times in these small amount of verses. Verse, 30, or verse 25 says, don't worry about your life. Verse 31 says, so don't worry. And verse 34 says, don't worry about tomorrow. God says, don't worry. Why? Because he owns everything. He controls everything. And he provides everything. With that being said, we will look further in the priority of this promise. I don't know how many of you remember the movie The Andromeda Strain back in 1971. It was a story about a satellite that was up in space and came down and crashed in a small town in rural America. But when they went in to go retrieve it, they found that all the inhabitants were dead and their blood had turned to powder and they couldn't fathom and understand why. So they got this satellite and they brought it to this facility 10 stories underground. 
you know, DEVCON 12, so to speak, down to the bottom of the earth in a place that if something got out, it wouldn't get out to the general population. And they looked and looked, and they had these electron microscopes that could see millions and millions into whatever they were looking at. They went from macro to micro, and they finally discovered it. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go from macro to micro. We're going to look at this verse in the context we just looked at. We're now looking at the verse as it's written, and now we'll look at each word that's in that verse to really help us get to the depth of the understanding of what this verse may mean to you as it has to me. The first word, but, says, but seek. This makes a contrast with the Gentiles. Jesus is saying, rather than being like the pagans who are concerned about their physical needs, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven should be concerned about and seek after the things of God. This word seek is an interesting word in the Greek. It means to try to learn where something is or try to find as searching for what is lost or unknown. To attempt to learn something by careful investigation. Seeking in the present contest speaks of a single-minded focus. Seeking is also in the present imperative tense. So what Jesus is saying is that the remedy for worrying is to make a daily choice. Your habit and practice to prioritize God's kingdom and his righteousness. To seek after that. The world won't stop tempting you to seek its passing pleasures. But one of the best defenses is a good offense. And in this case, seeking things above where the king sits at the right hand of the father is the best offense. But here's the caution. Do not attempt this on your own. Do not attempt to obey the command to seek on your own strength. You will fail and experience great frustration and you will, in effect, place your safe self in a performance mode. The only way to obey this command is to seek as a practice, a continual, habitual way of seeking. And remember, we're talking about direction and not perfection. This is what we need to do daily to set ourselves apart, our self-effort, our self-sufficiency, our self-importance, and we need to seek. I know most of you have experienced different trials and tribulations in your life, and it goes beyond my understanding that when people are facing a difficult trial, that their first thing is not to seek God. And you know, it takes time. Personal experience, about three years ago, going through a, a medical situation, I couldn't help but seek God. I didn't know where to look, but I looked. And for three months, I kept a journal. And in that journal are places that I would have never looked that God revealed to me, and they were promises. God's promises got me through those difficult times. 
And I'm sure there's many in here who have also experienced that. Instead, the believer's lifelong pursuit is not for material things, but for the presence, the power, and the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and King. Why is seeking so important? Well, first of all, seeking gives you rest. The greatest treasure of seeking the Lord is the promise that we find him, and in finding him, we find rest for our weary souls. He is the source of rest because his yoke is easy and his burden is light, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Secondly, seeking gives you fullness of life. The same God who created life is trustworthy with your life. He came so that you might have it and have it abundantly. Seeking God ignites the, eternal, or the eternity he placed in every heart and sets our mind on eternal things. Thirdly, seeking God gives you strength. His strength is limitless. When our knees become weak from pressure and our hands tremble with fear, he strengthens and steadies our ways. It's in those lowest moments where his strength shines the brightest. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Here we mount wings of eagles to soar above the earth and above the circumstances, to run and not grow weary. Fourthly, seeking God fills you with joy and gladness. Joy is found in giving the master the keys to your heart, sitting in the presence of him who is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. He revives our souls, gives light to our eyes, and overflowing joy to our hearts. Fifthly, seeking God finds refuge. Proverbs 18.10 says, Those who trust in him will never be abandoned. He is fortified. He is a fortified tower of safety for all who run to him. Six, seeking God gives you discernment and understanding. Ephesians 5.15 says, From his throne flows the discernment to live every day to the fullest, making the most of every opportunity. Next, seeking God gives you hope. Time in God's presence renews endurance to run the race ahead, a longing to see his kingdom come, and an expectancy to see him move here on earth because he cares for you. You can cast all your cares on him and receive a restorative hope for the future. Number eight, seeking God brings you blessings. Any sacrifice you make in seeking God is rewarded by the one who owns it. Psalm 24.1 says, Though it may look different than you expect, Jesus promises no one who leaves earthly things in pursuit of him will fail to receive as much in the present age and the age to come in Mark 10.28. Seeking God's kingdom leads to righteousness. Through Christ, we are declared righteous. However, living a virtuous life daily does not come easy or possible. And lastly, seeking God satisfies our soul. Psalm 107.9 says, He satisfies the hunger, longing soul with good things. And John 6.35, And promises that all who come to him will not hunger or thirst. 
How many of us have, can identify with any one of those? Which ones are we deficient in? And Jesus tells us in John 17, 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here Jesus is telling us that our continuing to seek God, desiring to know him more, is the essence of true spiritual life. The most important thoughts our minds can entertain are thoughts of God because they will determine the quality and the direction of our life. Seeking God is an ongoing responsibility and privilege to all those who believe. We can seek God both individually and corporately. Spending time with other believers and Jesus who are also seeking God is important to help us continue to seek him. There are verses that I put on your outline on the, on the back page that hope will encourage you in that way. First, we're, we need to seek. The second thing is we need to seek first. This word first means leading, foremost, prominent, most important, the first time, order of importance. The word first indicates one's first and ever-dominant concern. The concept of seeking first for the things of God is a predominant biblical concept that touches one's motivation and priorities, including how you spend your leisure time, the goals you set for your life, whether or not they're going to cause spiritual growth. What you do seek first, most of us are looking first at people, possessions, power, prestige, pleasure, and other desires that compete for the priorities in our lives. All of these things can quickly bump God out of the first place if we don't actively choose to give him first place in every area of our life. The verse's meaning is as direct as it sounds. For many of us, one of the major obstacles to seeking first the kingdom is the persistent problem with our priorities. We are to seek the things of God as a priority over the things of the world. Primarily, it means we are to seek the salvation that is our inheritance in, our, in the kingdom of God because of the great value. Does this mean that we should neglect the reasonable and daily duties to help sustain our lives? No. But for the believers, there should be a difference in attitude towards them. If we are taking care of God's business as a priority, first seeking him and his salvation, living in obedience and sharing the good news of the kingdom with others, he will take care of our business as he promises. But how do we truly seek first God's kingdom? That is the question we need to ask ourselves. Where do I put my energies, my time, my talent, my treasures. Believers who have learned to truly put God first may then rest in this holy promise at the end that all things will be provided. Matthew 6.33 is a descriptive or a description of how God works. Jesus taught that our focus should be away from this world, its status, 
its temptations, and so on, and place our focus on the things of God's kingdom. So first we seek. What do we seek? We seek first. What do we seek first? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He does not say seek for the kingdom, which is what he would have said if he was addressing unbelievers. But not for the sake of gaining knowledge. He was speaking to those who are kingdom citizens who make the interest of God's kingdom their priority. Why? Because they're kingdom citizens. And ask the question, is what I'm going to say or do going to advance God's kingdom in my life and for his glory? The concept of the kingdom of God takes on various aspects of meaning in different passages. And broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal, sovereign God over all the universe. Last night I was watching, I forget what it's called, the Blue Planet or something like that. And I, I, I was overwhelmed and fascinated by the organisms in the sea. We, we look out in space and we get things from the Hubble uh, telescope. And we see, we see things that we think somebody has painted them or done them digitally or whatever. And we're, we're just overwhelmed by the beauty. And we're always looking outward. But I started to think as we're looking at this one thing, Shelly looked at me, she says, that looks like a tropical paradise until you see the fish swimming by. And it was amazing to me the amount of intricacy that we have no understanding about that's right there in front of our eyes. Not just birds and flowers, but things under the sea you know, and in the space that we have no concept. And God says, my kingdom is even beyond that. I can't comprehend that in my mind. The Lord is sovereign of the universe, and so, in that sense, his kingdom is universal. And at the same time, the kingdom of God involves repentance and the new birth. And as God rules in your hearts and the hearts of his children in this world, he's preparing us for the next. The work begun on earth will be his final consummation in heaven. So we are to seek, seek first, Seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. Now, dictionaries define righteousness as behavior that is morally justifiable or right. Such behavior is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, and virtue, and uprightness. That, in today's world, is constantly changing, is it not? The Bible standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word, and every thought. How many of you are perfect in that respect? Therefore, God's laws as given in the Bible both describe his character and the plumb line by which he measures every human righteousness. Now, you might be saying, that's impossible, and I would agree with you. The only way it's possible is in Christ. Why? Because we are clothed in his righteousness. We have no ability to achieve righteousness in and of ourselves, but Christians possess the righteousness of Christ because God made him who had no sin for us, he became, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the only way 
we are righteous. Here is an amazing truth. On the cross, Jesus exchanged our sin for his perfect righteousness so that we can one day stand before God and he will see not our sin, but the holy righteousness of Christ. This means that we were made righteous in the sight of God. That is that we are accepted as righteous and treated as righteous by God on account of what Christ has done on that cross. Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner, though he was perfect, holy, and pure. And we are treated as if we were righteous, though we were defiled and depraved. On account of what the Lord Jesus has endured on our behalf, we are treated as if we had entirely fulfilled the law of God and had never become exposed to its penalty. We receive this precious gift of righteousness from the God of all mercy and grace. So we are to seek. We are to seek first. We are to seek first his kingdom. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then Jesus ends this command with a promise. All these things will be added or provided for you. The reason why I read 2 Chronicles this morning, chapter 1, 7 through 13, is when God was asking Solomon, Solomon didn't ask for those things. He said, Lord, give me wisdom and knowledge to judge your people righteously. He was seeking God. What did God do? He says, not only Solomon and I going to give you this, but I'm going to give you so much more. Now that's not a formula that if we go out and we say that, that God is going to bless us with all kinds of riches. That's not the point. The point is, is where is our heart initially? Are we seeking God or are we seeking things? Notice the distinction of food, drink, and clothing. That is, these are necessity, necessary, these are necessary things that we need in our life. God knows that. We need to trust them. Trust them to him. Because after you have sown and reaped and gathered, we need to leave the rest to him. We are to be responsible with what he has given us. Did you know that everything we have is on loan? We don't own anything. We think we do. I think it's a deception. You know, I used to get kind of bothered because we're renting a house. But I thought, you know what? When I have a problem, I can call somebody else up and they have to take care of it. Not me. And it doesn't come out of my pocket. This might be a pretty good thing. But I don't live there. There are more important things than that. The Father knows, and here is your blank check that he has written. All these things shall be added to you. Everyone seeks something. We are all by nature seeking people. Some people seek for money. Others for fame, others for pleasure, others for self-validation, others for power. Some may seek a husband or a wife, children, a new job, a better education, a new home, new friends, a new neighborhood, a new city, or a new state. The tragedy of our time is that so many people are wasting their lives chasing after three basic things. You could probably add to these, but this is what came to my mind. These things can never satisfy completely and are temporary at best. 
Here's my three things. Prosperity. We want more of everything, so we sacrifice our time, our health, and our families to buy it. And if we can't buy it, what do we do? We charge it. Pleasure. We want to satisfy our selfish desires, so we sacrifice our morals, our honesty, our decency, and our principles to find it. And power. We have the need to dominate at any cost, so we sacrifice our integrity, our decency, to get it. If that's, if that's not the world we live in, I don't know what is. And when we finally get it, we realize that it really doesn't satisfy. It's empty. It's temporary. We are not content. We are happy but for a moment. But then we need to maintain all of this, which becomes an unending stress and pressure which diminishes, diminishes our overall quality of life and living. The word happy is kind of connected to circumstances, what's happening. If this is a good circumstance, I'm going to be happy. If this is not a good circumstance, I'm going to be unhappy. The word contentment is different. Contentment means, as Paul says, regardless of what the circumstances are, I'm content. Why? Because of his relationship with God. Let's not depend on our happiness. In 1988, a very famous songwriter, Bobby McFerrin, wrote a song. Many of you probably recall it. Don't worry, be happy. What I didn't know is I, I'm a musician. I like melodies, so I don't really pay attention to the words. And so I went through the song and thought, you know, he had something going on here. In every life, we have some trouble. But when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't no cash, ain't no style. Ain't got no gal to make me smile. Because when you're worried, your face will frown, and that will bring everybody down. Listen to what I say, and your life expects some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. After all is said and done, where are you today, this morning? Are you focused on last year with all its trials, tribulations, and disappointments? Are you depressed and discouraged by the present? Are you filled with uncertainty and anxiety, worrying about what comes next? Or are you encouraged as we look ahead, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness? Will he not take care of our needs? Is he not in control over all things? Are we not the most valuable of all his creation? Are you in the way of what God wants to accomplish in each of your lives because you're worried about the what-ifs? You see, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus wrote his command, his answer, and his command. He said, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things I will be providing for you. 
Let's be reminded this morning, every moment of every day, that we are to seek a single-minded purpose in pursuing, first of primary importance, the kingdom of God, the only one who is worthy of our worship, his righteousness, his standards of morality and integrity, all the necessary things will be provided for us. So let's not worry or be anxious, but be content in our faithful king. This is the king's priority with promise. The question to all of us this morning is, what is your priority? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, for your eternal word, your life-giving word, the promises of your word, the power of your word, the person of the word. Lord, we are so grateful that you left us with encouragement. You showed us how much you do care about us, Lord. And Father, that if we put our trust and faith in you first, that, Lord, whatever is needed will be provided. We may not even know what that looks like, Lord. Help us each day with the circumstances that surround us, that we don't put our faith in the things that the world does. For this is all foolishness to you. Help us put our faith in the one who is over all these things, whose kingdom reigns, whose lordship is over all these things. It's universal, it's eternal. It sustains us. And Lord, may we as your people who have that within us, share that to those who have, that are hopeless, that we can encourage, that we give others hope not on who's going to be the next president or how much money I'm going to make next year, this year, or whatever, but in the God of salvation, for that is eternal. This is just the treasures on earth that are going to rust and fade away. But yours are eternal, Lord. Help us keep our eyes fixed on your kingdom. We thank you, Father, for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.